What's up, guys? Doug Polk here, and welcome back for another episode of the Doug Polk Podcast. Today, we are joined by Brian Pellegrino, someone that I've known from the world of poker and now in the world of crypto as well. He's, he's working on an interesting new project that he's excited to talk about today. But before we talk to him, I want to let you guys know, last week, we had Garrett Adelstein on the pod. It was a fascinating one. I think a lot of people really enjoyed hearing his story about poker and mindset and um, you know his experience playing live poker. So if, you, if you've missed that, make sure you check it out. And then we actually have a double header this week. Bart Hansen is going to be joining us on Thursday to talk about Austin poker, some general just living in Austin stuff. We're actually both based out here. And then we're going to talk about World Series of Poker as well as maybe some political betting stuff. So it should be a fun one as well. Okay, with that out of the way, let's go ahead and bring in our guests for the day. We are we are joined now by entrepreneur and ex heads up sit and go pro player. Eh? I don't know. Yeah. Welcome to the pod, man. Thanks for having me. So um, before we jump into this, I we have a lot of different stuff we can talk about today, and I know we have a couple different audiences. We have a crypto audience, we have a poker audience, we have a lot of different people that are going to watch this. So I think for for the audience, it's best to, to split this up, and we'll talk about more crypto stuff here in the first half and poker stuff in the second half, so that if you guys are watching or listening at home, uh, you can kind of tune in where you'd like. You can listen to the whole thing, of course. That's obviously strongly encouraged but if you do want to jump around you'll kind of be able to know where you can hop in and, and listen to what what's most uh applicable for you so should be a good one but before we jump into crypto stuff brian what's new man how you been not much man busy B- busy times for sure now i i would say uh you know i you never know what to expect when you're launching a new project but this has been utter utter insanity um so it's 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 been in uh, the best possible way but it has been pure madness for sure yeah, this podcast. So originally, when I reached out and I said I wanted to have you on the pod, um, we had a, a timeline. It was okay. We'll do end of August, I think, or something like that. And then it was early September. Then it was mid September. And then, and then I, I actually delayed it once. So I, I'll admit that it was partly my fault too. But I've been trying to have you on the podcast for a while here. Um, obviously, you worked some with Upswing when you did some um, coverage with the challenge. So you know, we appreciate having you on that to talk about that. But kind of going back to talking about the project you're working on now. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. Um, Layer Zero is the name of it. It's an omni-chain messaging protocol. It's basically, there's a bunch of issues right now. We really started because we were trying to build something. We just couldn't build it. We were like messing around. We, we just tinker a lot in general. We like to build things and we were trying to solve some problem. There was just like no good way to do what we were trying to do in terms of like communicating between chains. So you know, you have all these chains, you have, everybody knows Ethereum, everybody knows Bitcoin, and that's, that's great. You have these kind of main chains, but there's a bunch of other chains now. I'm sure people have heard of Solana and Avalanche and sort of like all, all these other chains that exist. And there's all these growing ecosystems around and there's no real easy way to communicate between them. You have very narrow bridges where, you know, a user can transfer assets, but you don't have really native applications, even huge applications like Sushi Swap or kind of like across 13 different chains, but none of them communicate with each other and none of them share state or do anything. So, you know, that, that's basically the problem that we're solving is, is the ability to, to talk um, between applications across all these different chains. That's been a problem from, you know, kind of the early days when people think about blockchains and some of their shortcomings is the ability to to interact with multiple chains. And I think that you've seen some projects kind of work in that space. Like I think about ThorChain, um, as scammy as their marketing is. I, there's something about ThorChain when I look at it. I, I remember someone explaining to me what ThorChain was. I'm thinking, okay, that's kind of interesting. And you click on it and then you get all their ads and stuff. And I think, man, this doesn't seem super legit. But 
they actually are legit and they're working on atomic swaps. So they use sort of their own token to facilitate swaps. How is that different than what you guys are trying to do when we're talking about look, working with different different blockchains together? Yeah, hundred percent. And like, yeah, the, it's really interesting to see some of the communities in, in crypto are just like so diehard, right? Like uh, Rune is is absolutely one of them, and then like Olympus DAO and Link and all and all of these others where, where people are just like, uh, it's re- it's really crazy. It's it's kind of this religious thing, which which is both maybe awesome and a little bit scary at the same time. But um, uh, yeah, no. Um, Thorchain is specifically focused on the deck side of things. So they're, they're focused on a swap. You're going to have, you know, ETH and you want to go to BTC and they're going to facilitate that swap by basically doing two swaps where, where you're going kind of ETH to Rune and then Rune to BTC on the other side. So Rune kind of plays this peg in the middle that, that allows everything to connect to each other. Um, but Layer Zero like, we, doesn't care about a, a specific application. It's not trying to be a bridge. It's not trying to be a DEX. Those are things that are built on top of Layer Zero. So everybody really focuses on, on strictly value transfer and not on generic messaging. And we are strictly generic messaging. So bridges, DEXs, lending protocols, um, all of these things, uh, unified governance, like those are things that would be built on top of layer zero. Um, So a clear example of something that may be more of a generic message than a value transfer is like, let's say you want to collateralize ETH on Ethereum and borrow you know, AVAX on Avalanche or borrow Sol on Solana, right? Um, That if you want to do it now, it's something like, You'll collateralize your ETH on Ethereum. You'll borrow some asset. You'll bridge it where you pay a fee. You'll swap to AVAX or Sol where you'll pay a fee. You'll farm. You'll swap back, bridge back, repay, unlock your collateral, right? Like the ideal world is you collateralize on Ethereum and like you send a message and say, hey, I've confirmed the collateral. Just let them borrow directly on that chain. Um, And so, yeah, I think think there's a lot of cases where it's not just value transfer, but all of those value transfer cases are things that would be built by somebody on top of layer zero, where layer zero is strictly the messaging layer. Even then, your borrowed asset is going to probably be different than the asset you're going to be farming. So your exposure actually ends up being different, right? So if I deposit Ethereum and then I, you know, withdraw wrap Bitcoin or whatever I'm going to eventually exchange into or USDT or whatever I'm eventually exchanging into Avalanche, my borrow is still in the state in the asset I borrowed rather than Avalanche itself because you're not able to borrow Avalanche on that platform. So there's also some exposure concerns there too, I think. That's how the lending protocols work in general, right? Uh, Even if you're only on Ethereum and you deposit to to Compound or Aave or whatever, you deposit Ethereum and you borrow USDT or you deposit Ethereum and you borrow wrap BCC. Um, The point at which you get liquidated is when your Ethereum goes below a certain value, right? It's it's not based on on what you're borrowing. It's based on, on your, well, it's a mixture of what you're borrowing and the collateral basically. Right. But what I'm saying is by being able to directly um borrow on avalanche's chain then you may have optionality that you wouldn't have had otherwise because you can just borrow those native assets on those blockchains yes yeah yeah, 100 yeah. percent. whereas on the ethereum side like avax or sol etc don't exist you cannot borrow that in ave ethereum or compound ethereum right that that was really the, the point I was, I was sort of driving at there um so it's going to be difficult here because i'm obviously i'm i'm in the weeds a bit but from a coding standpoint i'm obviously i know nothing so what can you kind of, how can you explain this to maybe a novice? Because I think it's really important with explaining what you're, what you're sort of trying to do. If you can't explain it to someone that has no idea, then y- you need to think about your marketing and your messaging and change it so that people with, you know, just a very brief knowledge base can understand it. Can you kind of walk us through the way that you're trying to attempt this and, and kind of break it down for, for people that might not be familiar with what you're trying to do? Yeah, absolutely. So there's, there's like two ways 
there's only two ways that everybody does this right now. So, so this exists in terms of like bridges, all these things exist. And I'll talk about the security side first, because it's, it's really interesting, to kind of, uh, really important to kind of understand the security properties of, of how you're transacting across these things. And this is what impacts whether or not applications are going to build on top. So the most common way, 90% plus of all of these exist in something I call a middle chain, which is basically you have these two chains, um, you know, let's just say Ethereum and Solana, they're atomic in state. So they don't know anything about the outside world. And you have to find a way to get a message from one chain to the other, ideally in the most trustless or trust minimized way. Um, the way that people do that now is they just make their own chain in the middle. They say, you know, you're going to write a transaction from the source chain into that middle chain. It's going to come to some consensus on the validity of that transaction. And then it's going to write a message out. So the important thing there is that it is the one who's signing a message to the destination chain, and it has the ability to write that transaction and kind of lay claim to liquidity there. So the problem with this is that this middle chain, if it ever becomes exploited, even for a very short period of time, it has the ability to just write transactions and lay claim to all liquidity on all sides. So these systems are like typically 10 to 30 validating nodes, maybe two, $300 million bonded, but they're meant to secure tens of billions of dollars of liquidity. And they're trying to become more and more decentralized. So like, you know, reorgs happen on chains, 51% attacks happen on chain. And that's, that's typically like very expensive. And they have uh, like a very clear incentive structure with, with the mission, and everything for why that like, we're trying to prevent that. On the middle chain, it's very, you know, nothing builds on top of it. It's much less clear why those incentives are. And like, if you just need to be able to basically take over this small amount of nodes and a couple hundred million dollars in bond to tap tens of billions of dollars liquidity like it's just a huge honeypot i mean this is why you've seen like there are not many applications right now building who are like natively multi-chain because this is just a scary mechanism to to push off and there's a hack kind of recently poly network where the hacker basically made himself the only validator in the middle and just immediately took you know almost a billion dollars on on all sides you just said wrote the chains and said hey all that money belongs to me he actually just took way too much money was was the problem if he'd taken a little less money he might have gotten he might not have gotten caught had to give it back i know it was was an amateur mistake by him he could have siphoned off a little bit but but in terms of like network security it's a big issue right so that that makes sense I, i actually haven't thought about things from the the security side of trusting a sort of a third chain to facilitate i think with a lot of these things, I think, and maybe the Poly Network one is different. I'm not too familiar with that with that chain specifically, but a lot of these transactions, there's only only two chains, correct? Like, for example, if I'm going over the Avalanche Bridge, I'm essentially freezing my Ethereum assets on the Ethereum network that, and then I'm being given these assets on the Avalanche network, and then if I ever want to go back to the original chain, then I go bridge back over by essentially burning the tokens that were given to me on the new network and then thus it unlocks the frozen assets on the other token right so isn't that a way where you don't need to have that third party bridge in the um blockchain in the middle how does avalanche know when to mint right somebody needs to tell it you can make a message where you lock assets on ethereum but someone has to tell avalanche about it and that's basically the problem is who's the one and how do you do it in a, a trustless or trust minimized way to tell Avalanche what's happened on Ethereum? Like that's messaging at its core. 
Well, I don't know. You tell me, man. You're yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. No, there's, there's, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna solve this. We're, guys, we're we're fucked if I'm the guy who needs to solve this. So, let's not... <laughs> so I mean, I, I should say there there is one other approach to doing this, which is the, what Cosmos IBC does. I, I'd be remiss kind of not to mention it, and that's to run a complete light node on chain, which just means you're going to take the entire block history from one chain, take their block headers, and write it onto the other chain, and vice versa. Once you do that. Amazing. You have the complete block history. You can just submit a transaction, do the walk and validate it. But the problem is writes on blockchains are really freaking expensive. So you're talking like tens of millions of dollars per day to kind of write these histories to Ethereum per chain your time. So it's, it's just like not a viable solution right now for Ethereum EVM system. So um, in... I'll, you know, I guess uh, there's two ways I can go. I'll, I'll talk about what we do first on the security side, and then I'll, I'll talk about kind of that minting mechanism for existing bridges. So we invented something, which is kind of what enables all of these zero. We, we call it the ultra light node, which is basically the process of being able to stream one single block header on demand and validate it directly on chain. So rather than needing the complete block history, you stream one on demand. Um, how this is done is basically we split it up into two parties. Uh, one party is an Oracle. Uh, we use uh, the established Oracle. So Chainlink, Band, Pith, et cetera. Um, uh, well, Chainlink and Band right now, Pith, et cetera, will uh, hopefully be in the near future. Uh, and then a Relayer, which is an open permissionless system. Um, and I can kind of skip over what's happening, but you know they're both passing pieces. Uh, the Oracle is passing a block header, which contains a receipts route. The Relayer is passing a transaction proof, but it kind of reduces to two interesting properties. First property is that the worst case security of this configuration is still equivalent to the best case security of the chosen Oracle. So if you choose band or chain link of your Oracle, whatever it is, so you choose chain link, the worst case of the layer zero configuration is that the Oracle and the relayer are the exact same entity. They're basically in collusion with each other. They just agree on everything, right? They're, they're the same thing. Um, and even in that case, it's still as secure as the chain link done. Like that, it's predicated on being able to defeat basically the, the Oracle. So worst case of this, equivalent to the best case of Oracle security. The other interesting property is that even in the case when your the Oracle has been exploited, it's become malicious, it's in collusion with Relayer A, and they're performing an attack. Only user applications accepting messages from, from the Oracle and Relayer A would be affected. Anybody using Relayer B through Z, completely unaffected. Anybody relaying their own transactions, completely unaffected. Anybody using any of the other Oracles, completely unaffected. So you take some huge central pool of risk and the risk becomes very heavily sharded or siloed across these specific Oracle Relayer pairs. It's just like a very attractive property to have in a system like this. So... That's the security side. That's how we approach it. Um, and then in terms of like what it can do, well, one thing that you're describing is exactly how that works is on all of the existing bridges, you're essentially locking an asset on one chain and minting it on another chain. And then you're burning that and redeeming it. And this is great when everything only existed on Ethereum because nobody really cares. That's, that's totally fine. You're minting some synthetic or derivative asset over on the other side. You're going to burn and redeem it. But now you have a bunch of... Um, projects who are natively deployed on a bunch of chains and they're running this problem. So like MIM, Magic Internet Money is one where MIM is deployed on multiple chains, but they use AnySwap as a bridge. And so what happens is, you know, uh, maybe they issue a million dollars on Avalanche, but then $5 million worth uh, gets locked up on Ethereum and gets minted over the AnySwap bridge. And what happens now is that the MIM, the million dollars of MIM is a different token 
than the $5 million that has come from Avalanche, uh, come from any swap. So any swap or any of these bridges, they mint you their own version. You're getting a, a vanilla wrapped, basically ERC-20. And so if your token has no functionality and you're not deployed natively, maybe that's fine. But if you have functionality within your token, like a rebasing token or anything that has custom functionality, all of that's stripped out. And then now MIM has this problem of like, okay, when we're trying to get accepted as collateral into Aave or into any of these other pools or liquidity pools, like, do we use our real token or do we use the AnySwap token? And it becomes this where each bridge has their own. So like in, in an ideal state, when you're thinking about bridges, what you would really want is there to be like native MIM on both sides and you add MIM on Ethereum and subtract MIM over here and vice versa, right? Where you're using the real token. So this issue of like, uh, locking and minting and burning and redeeming actually becomes like a, a pretty significant issue as you as you move to kind of a multi-chain ecosystem or apps move natively there. Wouldn't that problem only happen if those tokens existed simultaneously on the same blockchain? Is that what we're talking about here? Yes. Because, because if they're on different blockchains, then you could just use the to- the most common most commonly used asset on that blockchain, right? Like the any swap bridge could give you the token that is the standard for the chain that you're moving to, right? Yes, but any swap owns that. So now, uh, what if you want MIM to be accepted in the Avalanche bridge? What if you want it to be accepted in any other bridge, right? Those are three different versions. MIM doesn't own the contract that mints. Any swap owns the contract that mints it. So you're not getting real MIM, you're getting any MIM, and then you're getting, you know, uh, MIM.e or whatever uh, <coughs> the Avalanche bridge would give you, and, um, you know, so on, so on and so forth. So you get this kind of... Uh, disjointed presence of your token um again with all the functionality stripped out but more importantly like you're basically completely beholden to that bridge you don't own your own token you don't have the ability to mint your own token everything has to become a central pool of issuance and go through that bridge and you're like you're married permanently to that bridge's architecture um yeah interesting going back to security for a moment here you're talking you, you talked a little bit about using oracles and i guess i just wanted some general thoughts there um i'm, I'm a little bit familiar with Chainlink, and i feel that they seem to do at least a good job of um their oracle compared to some other ones that have caused issues with some of these different um DeFi protocols what are your thoughts on the oracle landscape as it is today and who are the who are the big players maybe you mentioned another one band i think you said yep. um what are your thoughts on it maybe band versus Chainlink or just oracles as they are today yeah i mean i I think in general Chainlink has like a a fairly dominant position i think basically anybody can see that they do a um great job in terms of like integrations and in propagating out within the ecosystems they power a ton of liquidations across DeFi. like they're very widely used um band came later i think um and again i i should get i guess some clarity on that but i but i think band basically is has a, a slightly different way uh, that they handle um, security within the network. I, I think Band is more of um, a more of like a permissionless system where, where Chainlink is basically. And again, I'm I'm, I'm sorry to all the, the Oracle people if I'm butchering this a little bit, but but Chainlink basically has like verified nodes, right? So they have they so, they can so hand select the nodes within their network. Brian, I'm sure the Chainlink guys are known for not being very into oh, it yeah. or caring very much. So I'm sure if you, if you mess up something about Chainlink, they'll be cool. No one's going to tweet it. Yeah, I wouldn't even worry about it. Definitely. Um, no. So Chainlink, like the Chainlink brings in kind of like trusted or semi-trusted entities and their, their kind of Dawn structure is, is almost like a proof of authority, but not really, right? There's still some consensus being formed between these entities, but I believe Band is like an open system and Chainlink is like, we're going to bring in... Um, 
I don't know, I'm just making up companies, but like, you know, big companies basically are going to run a validator within this network, but we're going to have chosen them. People are going to trust them. And eventually people are going to bond into the system. So it's kind of like different approaches. I, I think band may be slightly cheaper on the transaction side. I don't know. Pith is very Solana focused and, and very like uh, price and data feed focused. Um, and then there's some aggregators. Um, I don't know if it's alpha or a couple of, there's a couple that basically also aggregate oracles. Um, so landscape is like pretty nascent, but it's, it's a very important piece of, of everything. And that like you have certain pieces of, of off-chain data, whether it's like weather or price feeds or any of these other things that you need to be able to do to, to power liquidations or do any of these things. Um, I, I think it's really important to have that. I, I think there should be some kind of distinction between like, you know, you don't want your Oracle. They're not meant to basically become this arbiter of like transaction value or truth or a bunch of things, but they're, they're very much meant for like pieces of data and being able to provide that in, in a very trust minimized way. And I think they play a really important role within the ecosystem. My understanding of Chainlink was that its sole purpose was to lose me money every month. And I have to say, it's been doing a very good job of that for some time. Do you think that there could be a bit of a shakeup in the Oracle space? Or do you think that Chainlink will still continue to be the dominant player for, for the future? Um, I think it's hard to say. I think I think the biggest things basically within the Oracle space that everybody considers is, is reliability. Um, I think that is by far the most important piece. Like You do not want when you're trying to trigger liquidations on Aave or on something like you just can't have that not be at the highest possible level of reliability. <clears throat> I think cost comes into play the more that they're used um, when you're paying like Ethereum style transaction rates, like, like it's just, it matters in terms of what that's adding to, to the things that you're doing and how that's being passed on to the user. Um, and then it's really just ubiquitousness, right? Like you want to be able to use, um, a similar at least structure to be able to be able to do all of these different things. So whether it's, you know, their oracles are used pretty commonly for, for random numbers, um, for random number generation, which is like an off chain thing that happens and then passed on chain. Um, and again, for, for price feeds, there's like very common use cases. I think as, as these get more and more integrated into a bunch of different applications, you kind of want to use the same structure. So you want an Oracle who is, who is going to be doing, um, I, I guess you want either a hyper-optimized, very specific one. So maybe that is Pith just doing like just price feeds or you want one that's doing uh, everything because you're going to be using multiple components within a system. All right, that, that, that makes sense. Taking the taking the Oracle um, information and applying that to layer <laughs> zero, what's what's the importance of using Oracles to, you know, for security with layer zero? Yeah, I mean, I think if you basically... If you're not doing that, you are coming up with your own kind of structure on security and you need to incentivize that and do everything. And so we were of the opinion that like oracles have a great base level of security. But if we were in application building on top, we're not sure, you know, if we're, you know, 10, 20 billion dollars, like we're not sure we'd want to trust that to any off-chain entity, Oracle or not. Like we just don't want some middle chain who becomes the arbiter of that. So this is kind of where the relayer concept came, where if you if you are relaying your own transaction. So say you're Ave and you, you know, responsible for 20 plus billion dollars. And, you know, it's, it's kind of a concern as you're, as you're moving across all these chains to have all of that exposed to some central party, because $20 billion is like a huge honeypot. People will try to break that and try to sort of capture this value. And so if you Ave basically are, are relaying your own transactions, as long as you're not colluding with the Oracle against yourselves, like you have complete control over the security like uh, the worst case that can happen is the oracle turns malicious 
and it just fails against your honest block headers. Like that just doesn't validate and nothing happens. Um, there is no way that they can kind of lay claim. And I, I think that's really the big risk is like you want some structure that, uh, again, kind of gives you a worst case security as, as being in that Oracle. That Oracle level is worst case. That, that's a great worst case to have, but you want to have the levers to be able to to do what you need on top of that to, to give you security because we are dealing in, in huge numbers. And I think it matters. It does matter. And when you talk about the amount of money sort of as a honeypot, Whenever I'm looking at protocols that I potentially might want to uh, farm DeFi in, I always look at the TVL and the audits. And usually if you have a reasonable audit and a high number on TVL, you're, you're generally speaking going to be safe unless maybe it's BSC. Um, but you're typically speaking going to be pretty safe. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on, on, on using that as sort of a, your, your framework for is this, safe, is this a safe place to be? Because we look at sort of the DeFi landscape the biggest hack ever was for 600 million. It was too much money. The Poly Network guy, everyone came after him and he eventually ended up giving the money back. So there is there there is some level where it is just simply you steal too much money and people just won't, won't allow for it. You get attacked on too many sides. Is there a certain TVL where if you're farming, you feel you should feel somewhat safe just by the virtue of how much money is currently there? Or should people still be you know, careful when they choose to invest in something like Aave? I think I think everybody should be careful no matter what, but I, I think Timex uses a, a really great framework for this, which is basically just TVL over time, right? The the longer that honeypot has existed, um, the more attractive it's going to be. If you have, you know, a million dollars in a contract, like the the best hackers are probably not looking at it. If you have five billion dollars in a contract. It's very different if it's been live for a week versus if it's been live for a year, right? Like over a year, everybody who's going to have wanted to try to sort of find ways to to trim off or kind of exploit pieces of the system. I've probably taken a look at it. it becomes a much more interesting problem, whether it's just the intellectual side from from white hats or, or whether it's sort of uh, the black hat side of, of what value can we extract. I, I think those large problems get those eyeballs and therefore you can assume that they're more hardened. Are, are you worried at all with layer zero that Hey, if we fuck this up, it could cost just infinite dollars. Not to try and scare you here on the <laughs> podcast, but when I see something like that, I would think, "Oh man, I, I would." There's there's such a responsibility here to to not mess this up and not essentially lose people money. Do, do you feel any kind of pressure with that? I mean, on uh, anything smart contracts related, it's just like you can't be pretty good or really good. Like it has to be perfect. Um, we take security as serious as you possibly can. So you know we have written uh, hundreds going on thousands of tests ourselves. Uh, we have three firms, all very good firms, auditing right now. Uh, we're going to be putting up bounties, like incentivizing white hats. Um, it's something we take, again, like we're, we're doing as much as humanly possible. I think with any new protocol, um, you know, it, it's just part of it. You, you have to make it perfect and you have to kind of try to harden every single side of it, every corner case. And I think we've done a, a fantastic job of that, but they're, they're just... You know, again, it's it's just sort of this like time weighted system um, where you you need uh, the best uh, and most aggressive possible eyeballs on it trying to break it. Um, so yeah, you've only recently announced that you guys are doing this, and uh, you know, kind of what step are you at now with the business with the company, and w- where do you go from here? When when can we anticipate this actually launching? I know uh, it's always a bit of a joke sometimes with timelines and development, right? Because you really never know what 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 the timeline might end up looking like. But where are you guys kind of at right now? 
Yeah, so so we were really fortunate in that we just stayed 100% in stealth uh, while we were building. So by the time we announced, uh, all of the core protocol work has been done. Uh, we are already under audit on all three auditing firms. Um, so, you know, at the completion of those audits, we're, we're basically ready to launch, which is like a six-week time frame, let's say eight, eight weeks with kind of back and forth with the auditors. Um but, re- but really, we're like, you know, right, right there. So it wasn't one of these things where we're saying, hey, we're, we're building this thing, pie in the sky. It's going to be ready in like 2023. Uh, we just didn't talk about it at all uh, prior to, to it not being finished. So by, by the time we announced, it, the core protocol was done. Okay, cool. Well, hopefully everything gets approved. The audits come back great. And uh, I can start borrowing using uh, Layer Zero in the very near future. Yep. It'll change the farming so. landscape. Actually, how do you see this changing the landscape? I think I think there's a ton of applications. Um, I, I think some of the most frustrating processes right now are like uh, again, just you know, I, I don't want to harp on sushi. Lo, lo, love sushi, but like the the fact that sushi exists over all of these different platforms, but like you can't swap sushi on chain A to sushi on chain B. You want to go, um, you know, ETH on Ethereum to you know what whatever native on on that other destination chain. Like you can't do that. You need to swap it, bridge it, and then and then do another swap, or you need to do all of these different steps where like as a user, you have to leave Sushi's flow, you have to do all this. Like in an, in an ideal world where this stuff is connected, like, yeah, you're just going to click a button and you're going to say, I have this asset on this chain and I want to go to this asset on that chain and like done, right? You click the button, you wait the time and it's finished and the user doesn't need to leave this process and do it. Lending and borrowing, like huge application when you're talking about being able to do that destination lending, unified governance, uh, all anything that's deployed across multiple chains right now, like none of them tie their governance together and none of them do it well. Sushi each is like its own structure. It's not a, a sushi brand Herb, that ties governance. Ave, all, these, yes, all, these, all, all, all of these. Um, and then like we've seen a bunch of interest from things that we weren't really anticipating, which is like the NFT and gaming side is is, is beating down our door in terms of like you're running a game. Uh, you might want to have like the main thing that you're having, the, the final NFT or your castle or whatever you're building live on Ethereum because like that's where the most eyeballs are. And that's where like the, the transactional markets are that where that's where OpenSea primarily lives. But if it's like a, a game that you actually play, like you're going to want to offload that play to some other chain. You're going to be doing $30 per action in the game, right? So you might push that over to what, whether it's a layer two or whether it's a, any other chain that's high throughput, high transactions, and you play and you do things there and you kind of build and then you resolve some of that back. There's a lot of interest in that and being able to move NFTs around or move pieces of gaming around across. Basically, what it reduces to each of these chains have really... Uh, some of them less unique, but they're, they're trying to have kind of really unique properties. Some are high throughput, some are high security. Um, you know, there, there are all these different things that that each of them leverage. Some of them are trying to be gasless. Um, and what you want to be able to do <laughs> as an application, as the application layer is take advantage of like the best pieces of each of these. Um, and, and, you know, that's that's really, I would say, any application's goal is, is leverage each of those chains as, as an asset as opposed to like a restricted ecosystem. And it could have an uh, exponential effect here because um, it's it's multiplicative, not additive, or it it's sort of like if, if you are if you're able to connect Avalanche and Ethereum and Solana, you're connecting all these chains. The effect that that could have in the ecosystem could be. You see where I'm taking this? Like the hundred yeah, percent. I mean, I, I think the I, question. The words is, escape me. Yeah, no, no, I I, I definitely agree. Uh, I think what it will absolutely do is mean opportunities on chains will become 
much more heavily paid attention to something, something awesome launches on some new chain, you can now have a lot of inbound easily. Whereas before it's very hard to get that inbound. You need to, maybe you're going to keep your Ethereum, bridge your Ethereum and then swap on like, like, yeah. This actually might lower the alpha for people that are sort of getting into these ecosystem plays early because all of a sudden people can do it much more easily and you're not, you're not making money because you were the first guy to, to get in there on the bridge, you know? Yeah. So I, I think you may see kind of peak TVL of certain opportunities go absolutely bananas. Um, but I'm sure there's just a ton of implications we haven't thought through in terms of like how people build around this stuff. Makes sense. Well, I wish you the best of luck with that. And I'm looking forward to seeing how it plays out. Um, the next topic that I wanted to bring us to, so you mentioned NFTs. We've talked about NFTs a bunch in this podcast. I'm sure some people are like, no, please, no, no more NFTs. Guess what, guys? More NFTs coming right up for you. All right. So my tell me, tell me about my new my new thing I'm involved in here, Brian. I, I've recently gotten in, into the wonderful world of women. And I, I, I think, saw that in the avatar. I know. I and look like I held out for so long, so long on the NFT train. And then this one, I was talking with Mike about it time x about it and i just thought you know what this one just makes sense to me i feel that women are very underserved in the crypto space in general i could see this being sort of an iconic uh an arc an iconic project the art style i think is is nice it's clean uh i like i like what they're doing and i feel it's not insanely overpriced sorry but the crypto punks i get that nothing's ever gonna be crypto punks i get that but we're at a point now where i've made the decision not to to invest in CryptoPunks at too many junctures. And now we're looking at a, what, what's the NFT floor price for CryptoPunks? $5 billion at floor pricing. We're, we're just, the ship is just too too solidly sailed for me to be a part of it. I need something that us humble, us, us humble farmers can, can be a part of. And the wonderful world of women for just a, a paltry sum of $5,000 per piece of art at the floor, I was able to get in there. And uh, now I'm on board. I've, I've got the avatar. I'm I'm one of I'm one of you guys. You have your you have your avatar over here too. I, I am I a part of the crew now? Listen, uh, you know I think I think when most people approach NFTs, they they typically are looking for like what profile picture resonates with me most profoundly. And when I saw yours on Twitter, I was just like, this is Doug, right? Like this is this this is, this is him. He's found the one. I, I, will, uh, I will I will show I will show the chat here because it really it really does resonate. It just says. When I think of when I think of myself, I really like to think of this. See you guys, this is me. There you go. Here we are. 2021 in in all its glory. That's it guys. That's all that's all I have for you. You're you're now one of us. I'll 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 say that. You've jo- you've joined the crew. Well done. All right. Good. I didn't want people to think I wasn't I wasn't, you know, with the times, but um you know, we're embracing some diversity and I and I do feel that women are a little bit under underserved in the space. And and I think it, it, it one day it could be that successful women feel that par, you know, this is something that they purchase to sort of, you know, promote women in in the space and um empower women in technology. And I think that uh you I know, we were think- talking before there there's like a like a rogue project too, right? It was pretending to be very women centric, but actually had all male founders and was kind of like a farce. Someone was saying that as a conspiracy about my world of women, and that is not true. We have real women in the okay. world of women. At least one. There's at least one woman. Um, so you know, it seems seems legit. Yeah, I don't know, man. I, I, I the main thing is I just looked at this and I looked at everything else uh, sort of around it, and it it looked like it has. I think it has substance, and it has meaning. And I think in a bear market, 
people will hold on to their world of women more than they're going to hold on to their sorry man pudgy penguins or whatever else they're involved in that's your current avatar right you got a little pudgy penguin going on yeah um not to not to say that pudgy penguins aren't you know extremely valuable and legitimate Um, the the reason why i pivoted to pudgy penguins is uh so we had three punks um, and I, I were letting our kind of our, our three co-founders we were all using them as our avatar. And the price just got too crazy. And we sold the punks and uh, Ryan, particularly our, our CTO was, was so upset about it. Um, losing his punk. He, he, he loved it so much um, that he forced us. He basically said, we have to pick one right now. And like, we all need to have them together. And so he settled on penguins and we, we ultimately went down that route. Um, but, but I, I'm a fan of the penguins for sure. <laughs> I'm going to have to play something as well for the audience here because it is simply it is simply too good. It is the I put me into this project. Um you you know what I'm talking about with this? Have you have you heard about this? I, is this Cole? I don't think I've heard the clip. I've heard the guy who was saying okay. like my penguin is me and kind of crying. Yeah. So we're we're going to we're going to try something for the first time here in the podcast. We're going to try and and play a clip which I don't know if this is going to work so if you guys can't hear this we can go ahead and just cancel it but this is this clip is entitled "These Guys Seem Sane." Let's look at listen to it together. If you guys can't hear this, let me know, and we will we will stop the clip. I can't hear it at the very least. Okay, let's see if this works. Can I add sound? Nope, I can't. Can it's, I it's add a good, this is a good segue. You listen to it with the audience. I've been drinking this massive bottle of Can water. I'm going to run to the bathroom. So you play your two minutes. I'll be right back. Can I listen? Maybe I shouldn't be messing with sounds in the middle of the podcast. Let me see. Can you guys hear this now? Can't hear? Okay. Can we hear this now? All right, guys. Well, it might be that this is not possible because I can't figure it out. But let me try one last thing here. This is what you get for trying new things in the podcast. This is what you get for being live. A lot of lessons are being learned. Oh, what about this? Nope, that doesn't work. Ah, such is life. Maybe this. Hold on. Hold on. One last time. Maybe. For the road. That doesn't work. Audio. I don't think that's going to work either. Well, about no. Okay. Well, didn't work. The point of the matter is that penguin people are crazy. <laughs> did they seem sane on that clip or no? They did. Uh, they did not seem sane in the clip. Um, the the guy is talking about he didn't invest money into the project. He invested him. He invested I invested me into this project. It, it, it's some really great, great penguin stuff. And yeah, maybe people care enough about their penguins that that during bear markets the 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 polar ice caps won't melt. Uh, who knows? What was it? What were so you guys just picked penguins randomly? There was no because I've seen Fedor Holes has one of these. I've seen a few other people. A Weiss, of course, he was supporting it until he did his own cash gra- or NFT project. Um, what are your thoughts? So, so we already had a bunch of penguins early. We, we bought, uh, bought them super early and we, we just kind of, we, we try to stay on top of just trends within crypto in general. And so we, we bought a bunch, but Ryan was so upset over the fact that I had sold these punks that he was just like, listen, we're picking like the penguins and we're putting them in the vault and they will never be sold. And if you sell them, I'll kill you. His, his words to me. Um, so, you know, he's, 
he, he just wants like a, a team cohesive avatar and that that's what he settled on man he was scrambling post punks all right fair fair enough what are your thoughts on nfts do you think that there's still some upside from here obviously the run-up in in punks was pretty wild of course you you owned a few and were part of that do you see other projects following following a similar trajectory do you think that there's still ways left to go for punks what are your thoughts um i think that there's always or at least for a while there's there's going to be huge new booms right you're not going to stop seeing new projects that have the chance to go like absolutely insane um i I think that's just the nature of the space in the same way that you see with crypto projects regularly that said i think you know 99 percent of what gets minted on a daily basis is probably trending towards zero over time in the same way that you know most of the stuff did in 2012 through 2013 through now um And so I think, uh, you know, I think, I think it's just about finding the right stuff. Like the, the quality is going to live out. It's kind of like, you know, SM Pratt style, like, uh, older minter, rarer, better, like in, in general, like, I think that's sort of the, the hierarchy for things. And there will be new things that, that catch on and sort of like have staying power, like Bored Apes showed this and a bunch of others. Like if you can build a community, there's absolutely space for it. And I think in terms of upside, if you're somebody who has like, you know, I, I shouldn't say that. I don't want anybody going out and like spending their last money on NFT. But in terms of like asymmetric upside, it's been a really wild industry. I, I think I've known more people over the last like six months who have turned small amounts, like, you know, a thousand or ten thousand dollars into seven figure amounts. And then I even remember through like the majority of the crypto bull runs, like NFTs have just been ridiculous. So not financial advice, guys, but you know, if you want to turn 10000 to a million, Brian Pellegrino uh, has told you that he's seen more people do that than anything else. So just make sure to take that last, sorry, let's say 10 to your last 15. So you still have five behind and you can just thank Brian on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle, Brian, so that when people do really well on their NFTs, they can thank you. This is this is this is sad times. Uh, please, please, please don't do that. Uh, buy JPEGs responsibly. Um, but it is a... How do you even do that? How do you do that? That's a good question. Uh, that's that's something that somebody else needs to solve. I, I've got my own problems I'm working on. All right, changing gears here. What what sort of your macro uh, cryptocurrency view right now? Where are we headed? Where are we at? What types of currencies do you think are good plays? Um, can you maybe just talk about macro philosophy at the moment? Yeah, I, I generally, to be honest, most people spend most of their time thinking, or a lot of their time thinking about this stuff, and I, I typically don't like um right i, I think the market's awesome. showing me time and time again that the market is just like it's 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 it's, its own beast i'm not i'm not gonna be able to predict where bitcoin etc are i i think um my thesis for you know the past eight years has been accumulate as much as i can of both of the primary currencies i think i try to get in very early to anything that seems interesting um but i i think it's like ultimately i think the the biggest gift that you can have in the space is just researching anything and basically forming conviction. I, I think having conviction in the space, again, there's so much higher asymmetric upside than almost anything else. You got, you know, the Loma Chucks of the world who are just like 10,000 Xing, like 15 different investments. And it's just like, make a thesis, research it hard and execute on it. And, and this happened with NFTs, guys like D's who have come in and like just completely killed it from like a, v- a very low amount and just have this process and they have things that they believe in very fundamentally. And you have the same thing, whether it's, whether it's interoperability side, whether it was like the, the sort of uh, proliferation of like layer ones and these, these uh, trade-offs between them, like 
that thesis did amazingly well. Um, a bunch of these others, the DeFi has done amazingly well. So I, I think it's something where you just can't be good at everything. There's way too much information. Stuff moves way too quickly. You're way better off just like finding things that are interesting, getting really firm conviction on it, and just like making your bets and having that 50, 100,000 X upside, whatever that ends up being, right? Um, because otherwise you're just going to be like, oh, it's gone up 20%. Somebody else told me I should do this. Like, do I, or it's even worse, it's gone down 20%. Now do I do I keep holding? Do you end up just holding to zero? Do I cut? Why was this a bad play? Uh, at least when you have some sort of thesis or conviction, like you, you can learn from it. How do you gauge the size of your bet based on your conviction? Because- <laughs> Let me give you an example. So, for example, me me with Bitcoin. When I first found Bitcoin seven or eight years ago, I had a lot of conviction in it, so much so that it was one of my main investment plays that I've made over the years. But I still had a fairly di- diverse portfolio, and you know, I you can look at it. Hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? So you can look at this in one of two ways. On on one hand, I did really well for myself, and I have plenty of other investments, and everything has gone great. On the other hand. I would have made five times as much money by having done nothing else other than owning Bitcoin. So how do you figure out how to size your bets based on your conviction levels? Because when I looked at Bitcoin, I always thought, okay, I believe in the premise here. I think that um, you know, money based on math and logic makes more sense to me than uh, a government printing. I think long run, this one, there's only going to be 21 million of these. Demand will increase. These will increase in value. But there will be a lot of variance along the way. How do I size my bet there? How do people size their bets when they find the NFT? Let's say you get an NFTs, you got an NFTs six months ago, or even you get, in, get into NFTs today. How do you size your bets based on that conviction? That's really a difficult thing to try and do. Yeah, completely, completely agree. Um, I, I think <clears throat> I think there are a bunch of different ways to approach it. I mean, the, the first overall thing, and it just kind of ties into our our academic research with Facebook, is like I I, I really kind of believe that the framework of regret minimization is like a pretty good one. I think, I think people learned a very hard lesson. But I thought there was only two things, shame and regret. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I feel like like 2017 taught people or 2018 rather taught people like some very hard lessons that like uh, optimizing for upside is great when everything just goes completely vertical, but like needing to deal in, in minimizing regret at some point becomes like, becomes really important. I, I think this was the matter for me with, with punks. Like, do I think punks could go much higher than they were? Yes. Like, would I buy a hoodie punk? So I, I sold my hoodie punk for like one, 350, whatever it was, 1.1, 1.2 million or something at the time. And so, you know, the questions I was asking myself is like, one, w- w- would I pay 1.2 million to get another hoodie punk? And the answer at the time was like, no, I wouldn't. And two, like if this went all the way back down to zero, and I had my hoodie punk and didn't have 350 ETH, like would I regret it? And I was like, you know, yeah, yes, I, I probably would, right? And so um, I, I think a lot of it is, is really just framing that, like a lot of times you have a thesis on something that starts to become true. And so whether this was, um, you know, any anything, the DeFi, synthetics or, or uni or sushi, or whether this was the layer one stuff and you're an early investor in Solana. And I think there's like a clear case of like, if this thesis comes true, it's the same for Bitcoin, right? When we're buying Bitcoin at, at 10 or a hundred or a thousand dollars, right? The thesis was like, oh, if this, you know, if this plays out how we think it will, then the upside is that Bitcoin is like a hundred thousand dollars or a million dollars or whatever. And the, the question kind of becomes is the closer you get to that goal, like where where do you start to where do you start to change that, right? Like your your upside becomes much less asymmetric. Like your thesis has played out and it's starting to play out and you don't want to cut that too early. But at the same time, like 
where where is the point? So for sizing in general, I think like the way I do it personally is probably 50 to 70% of my portfolio now, which is probably the most responsible it's ever been is, is kind of sized um, responsibly with just like the primary stuff, stuff, stuff I really have no issue hold ever. And then everything else is just like as high of beta as I can possibly get or things that I want to make this bet on super long-term. So like this was deploying money into, into NFTs, whether it's punks or art blocks, this was deploying money into like the early avalanche ecosystem stuff. And you know, all these other things that are just like, like if the market goes up, I think this is going to wildly outperform. And a lot of times that ends up becoming a larger chunk of your portfolio. Um, but I kind of think in a responsible stance, you, you shouldn't really be more than let, let's say 30% in, in anything that you see as kind of like the high beta risk profile. thing. What are your thoughts on, on Avalanche and what they're doing there and, and basically their DeFi incentives program? I think the most natural parallel you can draw is what happened with Polygon I expect that we're going to continue to see what happened there play out on the Avalanche ecosystem. What uh, when did you first get involved, and what are your thoughts on where Avalanche is today? Yeah, um, timing. I, I don't know. I, I sort of lose track of time, but I, I guess when Joe was like thirty cents was when I got involved. So however long ago that was, <coughs> somebody can check a chart. Um, I think what Avalanche is doing is super interesting. I think they made one of the better bridging experiences uh, for what exists today. It was just like easy to get on. It was a nice experience. You didn't have this process of, so for other bridges prior, like you come from Ethereum and you land to that ecosystem and then you don't have any money to transact in that ecosystem to pay gas. So now you need to like go externally and you have to go to some exchange and buy that asset and send to the wallet and claim your transactions. It's just like a total nightmare. Like nobody wants to do that. And so Avalanche like, for um, amounts over certain amounts, they airdrop you like a little bit of AVAX and now you can transact across the ecosystem, which is super, they made it super nice to use. Um, I think anytime somebody's going to throw like 200 million to a billion dollars into an ecosystem of just like pure incentives, the TVL will come. And I think when the TVL will come, builders come. And the question is just, can they make that have longevity? Like is what they're building actually interesting enough? And I, I think it is. I, I think they have a lot on the tech side, they have a lot of really interesting properties on Avalanche that that make them quite attractive. Um so but you know who who knows for most of these ecosystems whether or not that will be. I think any ecosystem who does this huge um incentives program will get that huge boost. So they're going to attract TVL as everyone wants to farm all of these rewards because now the risk just becomes much better and everyone's willing to do it on a risk adjusted basis. And then uh, when there's so much TVL being thrown around, everyone's making money, like people just start yes. building stuff. They start forking and building. And then the question is, those incentives run out, everybody leaves. Like, is there still an interesting enough ecosystem to thrive? And they've done a pretty good job with it with their early projects. So like, I think Joe is is awesome. There's the, the product is great. Everybody seems to love it. They're doing creative things. And then the you name have- is great. You know, yeah, name is great. Exactly. You have the Ave and great. all these Very other cute. coming in. Trader Joe reminds you of the store. I, what, I mean, I'm in. Yep. For the yeah, that's, that's what I mean. Sometimes it just takes a solid meme. The, the Joe versus Pangolin- the Trader Joe versus Pangolin sort of uh, change in market share over the last uh, couple of months has been interesting to watch, especially because I, when I first got involved in the Avalanche ecosystem, I purchased relatively equal sizes of both, thinking one of these will win out. I'm just going to have both. And today has been the first day I'm starting to think maybe I should just let go of my Pangolin or my PNG because it has just been so brutal for PNG for so long. And at least what 
Pangolin had going for it beforehand was that it actually still did better on the um, larger trades. So, for example, if you were going to go ETH to Avalanche, then you get a better rate on Pangolin. <laughs> and honestly, Joe's even beating them there now. So the question becomes, how can Pangolin make some moves to sort of revert, uh, uh, you know, fix, fix the plug the leaks in the sinking ship? I don't know. Um, I'm still going to probably hold some, but yeah, I, I downgraded my position a little bit today, and I, I it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. So when you say when you talk about these these chains after the DeFi incentive program starts to end, because that's really long term what we we have to think about. Where does that leave the chain? And with Matic right now, I can't think of a currency in the top twenty. Sorry, it's down to twenty one now. Uh, that I would be less thrilled to own today than Matic. I mean, I guess there's a few. I you could, yeah. There's definitely a few other ones. You could always own some Ripple. Uh, Ripple tried and true, but. I'd be pretty, you'd have to pay me a pretty good rate to own some Matic because what's going to happen to Matic as ETH solutions, scaling solutions come into play, Arbitrum becomes more widespread, ETH 2.0 ends up coming out down the road, other chains have their incentive programs. Where does that leave Matic in, in the mix there? Yeah, I mean, I think they need to find their own identity, right? They <coughs> they position themselves early on as, as kind of like... um like an ethel 2 basically, um, you know, some, some de facto ethel 2 but now you have sort of uh, arbitrators and optimism and uh, they are, you know, going to become more and more hard pressed when arbitrum and optimism are, are kind of actually leveraging the security properties of the underlying layer. Right. So they, they have like a, a obviously cleaner claim to this L2. And so I, I think Polygon needs to, to do something that, that again, it had this great early, like the Titan hack, or hack the Titan implosion, I should say, it wasn't a hack at all. Um, uh, and I, you know, it may, maybe destined to happen with the, with the way uh, I was constructed. But um, you know, that where, that where are the regulators, though, Brian? Where are the regulators? Uh, uh, what is it? Wrench in the uh, or you know, thing in the spoke. Um, uh, um, yeah. So you know, I, I I think they they need to do something interesting, creative. They they attracted a ton of TVL early. They had those builders. And the TVL is left now and, and they have to get people building something that is interesting or have some property that differentiates them between the avalanches and the arbitrism, uh, yeah, arbitrums and optimisms. Um, and I, I think that's, that's a, that's a big order, but I think any layer one chain is going to, going to need to do that. Any primary chain. Um, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see what, what all of these chains start to do um, as they find ways to kind of differentiate themselves internally. This is one of my favorite memes of the year. I'd put this in the top 10, I think, in terms of just the overall amount of LOLs that I got from this meme existing. This is just, I, I, I unfortunately not going to give credit to whoever made it because it's just the image itself. But um, this was Mark Cuban's experience getting the DeFi guys. If you're listening, we're showing an image on the screen right now. Um, basically, Mark Cuban launched into some super scammy DeFi stuff, swung for the fences on the biggest possible return he could got scammed and made some comments about you know regulators needing to you know get in here and and, and help you know, protect people so um, i think yeah, he's taking like a more hardline stance on that too I, I think he's really become more entrenched in in certain aspects of of this need harder harder regulation well otherwise brian who's going to protect him from people like himself I mean, the three three point five trillion percent APY is hard to pass up, Doug. To be fair, seems legit. If someone if someone said, "Hey, man, you want three point five trillion APY?" Do you not? It's it's true. You and speaking I, of memes, I'm still upset. Race? I'm still upset that I couldn't get a Trader Joe. There's one meme that I love 
that the very, the very beginning, this was when Joe was like 40 cents. I used both products. And I was like, I don't really like Pangolin. I switched it all to Joe. And right as Joe was about to flip in Pangolin, there's this famous uh, gif of, of Mario riding Yoshi and he's jumping to kind of the finish line and he kicks down the Yoshi and does a flip, flips him off and kind of hits the, hits the winning thing. And I wanted somebody to put Trader Joe on the Mario and the Pangolin on the Yoshi uh, as they, as they pass them. But no, nobody ever built it. I was really disappointed in uh in the Trader Joe community. So maybe, maybe somebody will do that for me one day. Maybe we just need more money in, in DeFi incentives to, to make that happen. Maybe <laughs> I, I, we I think we might. These are, these are the big problems. Avalanche, where is the, the grant for memes? So, Yeah. Uh, last couple things I want to talk here about crypto stuff before I want to get into poker subjects. Um, we kind of we talked about ETH gas a little bit here, but do you feel that ETH gas is really limiting its ability to, to increase in value right now? Because I look at ETH gas and I look at trying to, to do anything on Ethereum. Just the classic example, I forget if it was this morning or yesterday or what, but I go on to do some transactions and I'm about to send something and I look at gas price and it's 555 guay. Okay, well, we're not doing this this morning. And that those moments happen kind of a lot. And yeah, I mean, average price might be 100. I'm not sure what it's at, but 100 is still extremely expensive at current ETH prices. ETH's kind of unusable for common people to use. Um, it's kind of unusable for only slightly rich people. You have to be very rich to be able to use Ethereum. Aren't people getting kind of priced out here? And do you think that maybe that's why we're seeing so much of the value in these uh, these networks like Av- or blockchains like Avalanche why they're increasing in value so much that people are looking for ways that they can be involved, that they can actually afford to use. So it's, it's not something that I worry about that much. I see it more as a testament to how much demand there is on Ethereum. So I know I don't know a lot of people take a different stance on this. One, I think in a, in a technological side, this is something that, that can be solved, that ETH 2.0 will ease, that um, you know L2 solutions will ease. Um, and so I, so I do think like this is something where it's just technology. There, there are going to be ways to to scale this better over time. I think the main thing I look at is across all of these ecosystems, um, and that's not to say that people aren't doing interesting things. There's lots of interesting things being done. The single only ecosystem that people natively build on. I actually thought it was a, a bit of a mistake for Solana to go with Rust instead of going with with you know uh, going with solidity or going going with any any other thing that, that people are kind of more well versed with but one thing i think has really done for them is people who build in solana are building for solana right where every other chain people are building for ethereum and then they're like trying to capture some value on another chain it's very rare that you see a project like okay Tra- trader joe is one and binance smart chain had it where like um you know pancake and some of these others like there are a few that are strictly that chain, but the majority want to be on Ethereum and then kind of want like satellite instances on these other chains. Um, and I think the you know, until we see that become less of the case, um, that it's it's really kind of hard to make that case and that it's it's short-term woe for like uh, just a long-term testament that yeah, ETH is where everybody wants to be and ETH, ETH is where all the demand is. But I do think Solana is kind of the counter case to that, that like People are building on Solana. They're building on Solana and nothing else. Like they don't care about the external ecosystems. You can't fork the code and throw it on an EVM. Um, and so it becomes like it's really turned into its own ecosystem. And that's kind of nice with Solana. You know, note, I have never owned Solana. I have not even looked in Solana that much. There's just simply too many things going on. You kind of have to pick your battles. And yeah, I got owned. I own nothing. I own zero Solana on the run up. I, I am I am poor. Ryan. But anyway, I'm I'm the same way in terms of owning zero. I, I watched Sam with that sort of historic yeah. uh, historic oh. tweet, and like I watched the entire run up. 
Um, you know, I, I own some DGen apes for some of the early Solana NFTs, but other than that, very little. Right. So <coughs> with Solana, because the program, programming language is different, you actually don't just have a million different forks of the same thing, which is kind of nice. Because it was cute, I think, when we first started seeing some of these forks of the same thing, and then there was more of them, and then there were so many, and then everything was a fork. And and you know now you don't have to worry as much about an audited forked code that's the exact same thing because it's programmed in a different language. But yeah, of course, then now you need specialized people that are familiar with this language instead of the other main ones. So obviously, it's going to come at cost. I guess the good thing for Solana is they have the the backing and the power, and really, Sam to be able to make it so that you get good developers in to use this code, right? Where maybe other projects wouldn't have that same luxury. Yeah, I think that's the ability is like, now that they can just stay insulated a little bit longer. Whereas like anybody, almost anybody who's building on these other chains, unless you're trying to capture a very specific audience are like building for ETH and this, right? They're building for both. And so a lot of that value gets driven back to ETH. It's possible for people to migrate over. The people who are in Solana, they're like, they're, they're not leaving. The people are using those apps. Like there, there's no, and you'll, you'll get forks in Solana, right? Like people just fork the, the Rust code. But uh, it means that they build for Solana first and Solana only for now, which gives them kind of time to have this walled garden uh, where, where they try to create their own network effects that ETH has been able to do. I hate when people use the term ETH killer because it gets used a million times and it has never killed ETH and probably won't. But do you think that there's room for Solana to still continue to grow from here? And does that have some kind of impact on Ethereum's long-term value? Can these things coexist peacefully? Where do you think? Funny story. I heard the other day, and I never knew this, that ETH killer was actually coined by somebody in the Ethereum sort of uh, foundation marketing side. Um, and it's sort of uh, very hardened Ethereum's position early on uh, that that it wasn't actually anybody else was setting out to be an ETH killer. It was something coined by them and sort of made everything seem like second best. And uh, re- really, you know, there's a lot of reasons why, but really helped entrench their position, which I thought was just like fascinating, the, the sort of like marketing psyops that goes on. Interesting. Um, so uh, in terms of, of an actual, you know, ETH killer or something that becomes more primary, again, the network effects are just so strong on ETH. I, I don't think so, but I do think like I firmly believe in in kind of the multi-chain future where, again, you, you have these really strong trade-offs between chains and you have these strong trade-offs between ecosystems. And I do think applications will look to leverage different things for different chains, just like when we write code or when we do anything like you just have different properties between programming languages where like you want to do something fast and easy or for one part of this, this thing, you're going to use a different language than when you're trying to like write custom kernels in CUDA because you're trying to like grind out every single ounce of speed that you can get. Right. And I, I think the chains are very similar where like developers are going to want certain aspects of their application that have extremely high throughput um, and then other ones to, to care more about the security or whatever else. So um yeah, I, I think we'll see a very similar proliferation. All right. Brian Pellegrino, quote, if you don't care about security, use Solana. Okay, let's move on to poker. Um, <laughs> no, I, I can't. I can't. All right. So let's let's talk about some of, some of the, the Negreanu challenge uh, or my challenge or whoever's challenge. Uh, for people that don't know, I actually worked with Brian and his team. You guys were my tech guys, basically. Got me all my all my ranges, all my questions that i had anytime i needed you guys to run all the flops you guys were there for me we did some really tedious shit and i mainly have to say thank you to caleb who's not here obviously but one of one of brian's guys uh caleb 
every day for the first few months of that thing, I was just, let me get some new ranges. Let me get some new sizes. Let me get this. Let me get that. And uh, he obviously spent a lot of hours uh, just helping me. So definitely appreciate all the work that you guys put in. Uh, what were your thoughts on the challenge? How do you, how do you feel? I felt it went pretty good. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I think it went great. Um, poor Caleb, first of all. He's uh, he, he's really like the glue that holds Ryan and Caleb together. So Caleb is a co-founder in Layer Zero as well. And like Ryan and I are very pie in the sky. We do a lot of the architecture. We do a lot of that. And then like Caleb gets gets left being the the glue. So, you know, we'll write all this code into architecture. And it's like, Caleb, like you need to write like 500 tests for this, like go. Um, and so, yeah, Caleb is the one who ended up sort of doing all of the, all of the nitty gritty, like doing this stuff for, for Doug um, in the day to day. But Caleb's amazing. Um, no, uh, I, I thought the challenge went great. I, I think it was watching you do the challenge and just the way that you prepared for it. Or I don't want to. I don't want to hype you up too much, but show me like a couple of things. One, uh, honestly, I, I think you approached the challenge in a way that like worked harder than almost anybody else I've seen do something similar. Like I, it's just was very apparent after like, oh, this is why Doug went from like twenty five NL to like the highest stakes ever, right? Like uh, you're just an animal, just sick. It's it's awesome to see. Thank you. And the other thing that really stood out was there. I think me like. When I think about trying to solve complex games, I typically try to think about like fairly complex strategies. Like I think my intuition would be, hey, I want to learn a strategy with like a bunch of different sizings and all of this crazy stuff. And, you know, maybe hit like 75% accuracy, but they're going to be putting a lot of spots that they don't know about. And your approach is really like, I'm going to have a strategy that's like a, a simple, straightforward strategy that may not be like optimal in some GTO world, but I'm going to hit it at like, you know, whatever, whatever percentage accuracy and just really like crush that and deeply understand kind of like how to nuance between it and understand how to, to move ranges around and stuff. And I, I thought it was uh, really non-intuitive and interesting to watch and, and kind of made sense in hindsight. Um, so it, it was really fun. Well, thank you for the kind words on the work ethic stuff. I and mean, th- that's always been my advantage. I, I'm not naturally gifted at poker. I've said that a, a million times. I just always outwork people. And I basically worked on that I worked on that challenge so many days. I was just up early messaging Caleb. Hey, can I get some ranges? Poor Caleb, man. But uh, I, you know, that's just, I, I had to win. I had so much on the line there, just in terms of not just money, but reputation. Uh, I just, it was extremely important that I won that. And, um, you know, I obviously I, I wouldn't have done it if I, if I didn't think that when I issued the challenge, I didn't think it was, he was going to accept it. But when he did, I, I decided to give it, you know, 110% and give it every, everything that I had to, to make sure that I won it. As for simplicity of your strategy, and this is something that's really important, I think, in poker, because as we see more and more what a perfect strategy looks like, we recognize that there are so many different sizes and strategies that need to be part of uh, a theoretically optimal strategy. But the reality is that the complexity grows by so much when you add in these lines. And so, for example, one thing that we did was we looked for optimal flop sizes, um, basically in, in all spots for optimal size and frequencies. And rather than splitting on the flop, I would just use single size for basically everything. There was some theme hot stuff out of position on certain boards where I, I think I played around with some, some some using two sizes, but primarily just went single size and everything. Um, and you actually do not lose that much value doing that. If you ran the sim on what you lose doing two sizes versus one, it's actually pretty comparable, your, your overall value. But now, rather than having to think about what is check single size or small size, big size, 
And then if you take small size or big size or check or whatever it is, thinking about next street, what do I have? And then trying to think about that. And then you end up in all these lines where you really don't know how much of what you have. I know what I have. I know that this combo bets about fourth of the time on the, on the fly or about 75% or whatever it would be. And so I was able to way more tune, like fine tune and, and really dive in specifically into the complexities of that strategy. Even though it's a more simple one, I could execute it with a much higher level of precision. And that that's kind of always been my, my strategy in poker because people try and do strategies that are just way too complicated for what they're able to do. And the end result is that they do them badly poker is very hard and if there's a very small ev difference between the perfect strategy and a slightly suboptimal one but one is way more simple i'm taking the more simple one every time because i'm realistic i'm going to make errors and i would rather limit my errors and then do a strat then and, and have a strategy that is almost as good now there are spots you have to split for example on the river in position and out of position you both you need you need small and big you just lose too much value if you don't have if you don't have uh check small and big in your in your strategy uh maybe in position you could even argue for three sizes but at least two so you're going to have to eventually split somewhere um but the reality is that most people don't need to be getting nearly as complex as they think they do and they might actually just be losing value by by doing that yeah i I would have definitely fallen into that category if i was if i was in your shoes playing that challenge i I think i would have tried like all right let's come up with this crazy strategy and uh i I maybe would have learned the hard way yeah, so when you played poker, did you only play heads of sit and goes, or what else did you did you dabble in? No, so I mean, it was a. I started playing poker when I was like fifteen and a half. Um, so just heads of sit and goes then. Yeah, just heads of sit and goes. No, um, dabbled in you know everything uh, early on. Found heads of sit and goes when I was mm, maybe nineteen or something. I, I think what happened is I was playing MTTs before that, and I, I went to Budapest for a year to study abroad. And MTT schedules just like brutal. They're like ending at like 11 a.m. Um, it was just a nightmare. And there was some random post of a guy on two plus two who's just like bragging, like I just coached this guy and brought him up to making 10k a month. Uh, and I had never even used two plus two. I don't even know how I found this post. And I just like ended up messaging him randomly, but like, hey, like, would you consider like coaching me as well? And he's like, yeah, we're gonna play heads up, sit and goes. And I got into it. And we you know, stopped the staking coaching like fairly early on. Um, I just loved like being able to kind of set my own schedule and do everything. And then ultimately I I played a bunch of live MTTs and all that stuff. But at the tail end, um, I had had taken a break to to start and sell this DFS site and then to do some machine learning models for kind of MLB stuff. Um, And I came back for one year and I was like warring to to get into kind of like the the highest um, stakes at Subsangos kind of like have this cartel system you know, it was just like not uh, that much. Yeah, they're all, they're all cartels. Um, and I ended up finding this this pusher fold on um, 88, which was like, it's called pusher fold. You min max buy in was 5 BB, but you can play as deep as you want. And I ended up playing up th- that up to like 501K. Um, and I had my best year ever, had the highest DV ever, and just like retired immediately after because I just hated it. I couldn't bring myself to play anymore. I didn't know what it was. But pusher fold made that last year uh, much more enjoyable. And I, you know, I was playing reasonably high stakes cash at that point, you know, six figure pots and yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, it was an interesting uh, diversion away from the heads of singles at the end. What happened where you felt like you couldn't play anymore and you wanted to retire? Um, Really? I like when I came back, it had been after, you know, I, I sold the daily. So poker got shut down in the States, scrambled, didn't know what to do. Went to Montreal, played for a summer, came back, started a company, sold the company. I was like, what the heck am I going to do with my life? 
um, came back and started um, just like trying to to get back into like, okay, I guess I'm going to basically stop gap poker here. So started, started to play over that year, um, found this. And I just like, I couldn't find the joy in it at all again. Um, I, I think what actually happened was prior to that, everybody else, everybody cared about the money. You know, I had all these friends who they got to a certain level of heads up saying go, and they're making 50 K a year, hundred K a year, 200 K a year. And they'd just be like, they'd stop. Like that's, that's good enough for them. They've done it. And I just, Never cared about the money at all. All that I cared about was playing people better than me. So like I was notorious for just like warring nonstop. I just didn't care. I wanted to play better people. I wanted to, I was just always warring when everyone's like, you're costing yourself so much money. And in that final year, the beginning was really exciting as I was warring to get on those things, trying to play the highest stakes. It was like the first time where I actually got to the highest stakes of all of this stuff. And just like nobody would play me anymore, right? I think like the only person who would give me 501k action was True Teller, unless there's like a fish, it was a six max structure. So it was just like classic. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it's just like it went from this really interesting, challenging, like intellectual pursuit where I, I would just always have up like three to six tables at all time, um, just just trying to play constantly to like I would sit around all day and have to like have my sound cranked up super loud and like just wait across 50 lobbies and wait for like a fish to sit. And then you just like play this mindless fish and just wait for them to make mistakes. And it was just like my highest earning potential, but so like non-stimulating intellectually. Um, yeah. And I just, I, I just, I don't know. I, I literally felt like I was just like this mindless monkey, just clicking buttons. I just hated it. Yeah. And heads up poker is like that. It yeah. becomes, you just sit all the tables and you wait and you hope to get some action. And then once in a while you get a bite, your bigger, tables and then how you, how those tables go is going to very much uh maybe not as much as heads up sitting goes but definitely in cash is going to very much determine how the rest of your month goes and if you run good it's a good month you run bad it's a bad month then it's back to waiting just for hours on end and the um, fun, fun part about heads up singles is if you forget or anything happens your internet goes down somebody just sits you and blinds you out on like all 50 lobbies at a time so it's just like you know your entire month is just like well maybe i won't disconnect next month so it's it's lovely that's gotta, it's gotta hurt. I assume that's happened to you then, right? Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, I, you have Awful. two or three internet connections and like, yeah. Well, the thing about poker is, you know, I enjoyed playing and at some point you realize that your time is done. It's time to sit out and never play again, which is why my favorite player when it comes to sports is Brett Favre. Now I like Brett Favre because he knew when he hang, had to hang up the gloves, he was done for good and he wasn't coming back. That's me. One time off into the sunset, a modern day Brett Favre. Thank you, Brett. You are an inspiration to us all. Amazing. All right. Had to give an ode to, to Brett Favre. When, with poker, towards the end there, did, did you? So it was just the monotony of just playing fish. You weren't in it for the money, you wanted the intellectual pursuit. Yeah, I mean, I, I, obviously the money is the money. The money's great, right? It's just a benchmark for everything. But it, it's like it wasn't. If I could have just warred good players and made good money, like that's what I wanted to do. I would have. I'd still be playing if it was just play fish and make even better money. There's no interest. Okay, fair. What are your thoughts on AI and poker? Where do you think things are at today? How far they've come? Maybe you could talk a little about your project too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so my, we did research with Noam Brown and Facebook AI research. We actually did independent research that was picked up by them and, and published with Noam and Facebook. And I, I, 
Yes, I know no no. Yeah, I know you do. Yeah, yeah. He was at the uh AI versus bot, sorry, humans versus AI challenge both rounds. Uh I met him in the first one. Well, actually I saw him there both times, but the second one I didn't play. I only played in the first. By the way, humanity won in the first one. I played humanity did in the second. I sat out. I'm just saying humanity, you know, if you need a guy, maybe I'm your guy. I don't know. Um yeah, no, I mean, th- those are those are both amazing. That was like, th- those are really got everybody interested, I think, in the spaces. This was like, there's a very long standing kind of feud of research between University of Alberta and Carnegie Mellon. And, you know, University of Alberta solved um, Limit Hold'em. They were like one of, the, one of the first ones to do that. And uh, then Noam came and like Carnegie Mellon started putting out like really interesting stuff. And um, Noam had Liberatus and then he had Claudico and. Uh, DeepMind, or, or rather, sorry, Universal Alberta, which eventually that team kind of became a part of DeepMind, put out DeepStack, uh, which is a totally different architecture, kind of like reinforcement learning and, and neural nets as opposed to um, Gnome's more uh, just just active active solving and kind of partial tree solving, which is they're, they're like very orthogonal in terms of, of how they're approaching it. They're kind of doing the same thing, but in very different manners. Um, and this just... Uh, Originally, DeepMind's work, that's what actually turned me on to AI in the beginning. Before I did my work with the um, MLB teams and, and the machine learning stuff was DeepMind released this video of like this Atari AI playing playing Atari games, right? It was beating Pong and playing all these things, just like learning on its own. I didn't know anything, just pixels on a screen and progressively made itself better. I thought it was a fascinating concept. And I looked for a long time into how to apply reinforcement learning into a bunch of different fields. And so when this kind of research was going back and forth between the two, uh, the DeepMind architecture, I thought was like amazing. It was just something we knew very deeply. And so we started researching like, what could you do to make this kind of like, because it seemed, the problem with all this stuff is the, the way that it gets benchmarked. And like, I want to call out anybody, but like, you know, a lot of times you'll see like, oh, it was just played against like, 20 professionals for like 500 hands each or something. Right. And the professionals are like Chris Ferguson or, you know what I mean? Just like totally, I don't even remember which group kind of had him play, but you know, it's just like random and you're like, okay, how, how good is this actually? How practical is this actually? And so I started looking to like, what can, what can you actually do to, to make something that's, that's interesting or, or seemingly relevant on that, on that time. And so, there's a competition every year that happens, the ACPC, which really sucked because right when we did our research, they That's stopped what, running the ACPC. Yeah, it's done, right? They never. They, okay. Yeah, but but prior to that, Slumbot was kind of like the the most famous one. Uh, he had won the 2018 one, um, and so we we like used Slumbot as as a benchmark for we're benchmarking against. We just kind of went down the rabbit hole of like trying to to do something interesting. We had this kind of gap. Um, where we weren't really doing anything. It was just like fun to work on. And at the same time, so we were also doing a work for, um, we worked on like autonomous vehicle stuff. We worked on um, green um, uh, robots that basically go around greenhouses, um, taking pictures of like tomatoes and are responsible for like tens of billions of dollars of produce. Like we worked on all these really cool applications. We we're looking into drug discovery. There was something where we should just like kind of test our chops and like trying to do this cool thing. So we just kind of build it and we're working on it and got stuck for a little while, kind of like six months. And then we had this breakthrough and we did it and we like showed it to Gnome. I just randomly, Gnome was like in town uh, at, at the NeurIPS conference and uh, we showed it to Gnome and Gnome was just like, this This was like really cool. You guys should really publish like what you're doing here. And he just helped like formalize like, okay, like what does this look like in terms of an academic paper? Like what are the ways to benchmark this? What is the ways to evaluate versus existing systems? So I think our 
ultimately is something like 5,000 times faster and more performant than, than deep stack. Um, and just like, you know, crushed Slumbot for 22 BB per 100. I think maybe like 18 EV BB per 100 or something. Um, it was just, it was, it was really fun. Uh, super, super interesting research had to get super low level on a bunch of stuff, but obviously like being able to reconnect the poker stuff with like all the new stuff was, was really cool. It was cool getting to go to that sample as well because I was familiar with a lot of the bot stuff from when I went and played. I researched the bots uh, just to kind of see what what they were doing and and the play that they would use. And before playing Negrano, I wanted to see all the stats that you guys had from that competition to kind of you know see if mine lined, lined up similar similarly. It's a little bit different because those hands were two hundred big blinds deep, and obviously we play a hundred blinds deep, but it kind of worked out because we played a lot of 200 blind deep poker in the challenge so there was you know some opportunity to get to see that happen a lot of interesting stuff that your bot was doing that i think that if a common person saw would say what the hell is going on like for example queens not always just a standard re-raise versus three bet or four bet a lot of times you're going to be fighting that hand which i think is is very much not the status quo i mean it might be today online i'm not sure how good people are but uh, it, it feels very weird because your hand can kind of clearly get some value by worse hands, but maybe it just wins more some of the time by taking this line, or I don't know if it protects your range in some way or what it, what basically, I don't know the whys, but I know the what's. And when I got some of those initial ranges, I remember when you first sent them, I said, Hey, Caleb, we got some problems here. It's, it, it's, it's saying Queens is a flat about, you know, a third of the time. It's gotta be an error. And he's like, let me check. And no, I think this is good. And I'm like, no, 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 it's not, Caleb. Don't worry. It's not good. <laughs> Queens isn't a call. And you're going through all the stuff. It's like, we got to this point where it was, no, this isn't wrong. I thought, okay, well, we're going to play some weird ass hands. And then some really weird stuff happens when you have hands like Queens and Jacks and um, some of your strong hands in there when you flat four bets. And I, I was occasionally trapping some Aces Kings too where in format pots you end up with some leads on some boards when you run the ranges and so there were a lot of hands where i would flat and lead the flop and people were thinking what what's doug doing i've never seen these weird leads and i'm thinking to myself as i'm leading me neither i don't know what uh, this is just what the math tells me the sims the sims actually really love some leads and some boards they almost lead range boards like jack 10 8 uh the big blinds leading almost range when you flat four bet so we got i got some really interesting outputs and i got to play some kind of cool spots and it was fun getting to see see these solutions and input them into my game and and, and get to play these unique positions yeah, i mean fun, funnily enough we have no clue why it does that stuff either right it's just like not something that we actually understand why which is why we always like like doug i trust you that you're right like we're gonna go and check but we can't find what you know what would be causing this um but no i, I think definitely the in everything prior, the, the biggest area for improvement was definitely pre-flop. And so when you're talking uh, PO solver, any of these other solvers prior, like pre-flop was just done in a way that's using like this very small subset of boards or these very like minimized trees prior. And so being able to take that and actually solve something where you can solve like these huge complex pre-flop trees um, and solve it over, you know, uh, you're using a neural net in terms of like the heuristic function, but in, in a way that gives you this, this interesting representation of like a full tree uh, really, I, I think was the largest divergence from, from strategies is, is, you know, everybody looked at it is what we said. And we had, annoyingly had to build this converter because uh you know all the i think it was like two hundred and fifty thousand hands against slumbot uh they were all done with like slumbot's apis we were just like basically six tabling we had all these instances hitting slumbot and we actually had it where 
uh, when we were causing Slumbot to like go down or like torch our database instances in Slumbot. So we were saving them all internally. And then we had to like write a converter to be able to import them into poker. We, like show we, had, we had to do a similar thing with the, the first bot challenge where we got the hands in the ACPC format. And so one of my buddies had to write a converter from the ACPC format into the normal format. So you can exactly. import into poker checker. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So no, it was, I mean, it was, it was super interesting and definitely fun to see people say like, you know, uh, I, I guess eventually it was just like, no, nah, like I'm pretty sure it's not wrong, but I'll check for you. Um, but it was fun to see people like really have, have their minds blown on, on certain parts of it. So it was just cool to see something like that. So I checked the sample your your bot played in that challenge and it was doing it. So, you know, I thought, okay, well, fair enough. But then it was doing it at 200 big ones. So if it's doing a 200, it, it might, maybe you shouldn't at 100, but if it's using the same inputs for that, that it was using for this, then it kind of just has to be right. Um, so sorry, I guess I my eye what's going on over here, but yeah, basically it just has to be right. So I just trusted the math, trusted the logic, trusted the numbers and I went, went for it. And I think, I think it went pretty well. And it definitely, it definitely puts your opponents in some tough spots when you start leading some weird boards and having these strong hands that they're not anticipating. And so maybe people also play badly against that. I know that's not the logic of why it does that, but you get that nice added effect too, which is people play a little bit, um, you know, maybe a little bit poorly against against those strategies. So yeah, it's always sure. nice too. Um, all right. So w- going back to poker AI, I think that there is this looming threat, sort of an existential threat threat to online poker, which is just the strength of AI. And of course, no one would know that better than someone that played heads up sin goes back in the day, which is those are the easiest form of poker really to solve and and have a bot beat humans. So where are we at with online poker kind of as we move forward? Do you think that people should be concerned about playing online? Obviously things like cash where it's, you know, set stacks and stuff seem a bit more worrisome than tournaments, but how should people feel about playing online poker in today's environment? And do you think it's just a countdown until AI is eventually just going to solve all of this and people need to move over to playing live poker? I mean, the question, like, I, I think the most interesting, well, you're not most, but you know, chess is an obvious parallel, right? We're like, no human can be in the chess bots now. Um, but chess just does a very good job of being able to determine when somebody is playing as a bot, right? It's chess still has this huge and thriving ecosystem and there's tournaments, but it's not like every single game is played for money. And, and when it's like that, it's a lot harder to police. One thing I think in the online ecosystem is that most sites don't care about security, no matter what they want you to say, they, they do not care. Um, and we know this because we reached out to some sites and we're like, hey, we made this thing that would be pretty easy for you to detect some of this stuff. And they were just all like, eh. Um, so, uh, no, um, you know, honestly, most sites just don't care. At the end of the day, I, you know, maybe bots aren't good enough yet that, um, you know, maybe they just they don't care because they're, they're pretty good, but they just like generate a lot of volume and the site's raking and the site's just like, whatever, um, who knows? I think some sites obviously are care more than others for sure. Um, but I think, um, you know, is it going to get better than any human? Absolutely. hundred uh, percent. I do think research in the area at the academic level has slowed down a lot. Like I, I think Gnome has largely moved on to other problems. I, I think the, again, the Alberta team went over to DeepMind and they're sign of solving completely other problems, still, still in game playing, but away from other games. So people approach Starcraft and Dota and Gnome is doing cooperative games. Um, and he was doing, um, uh, this game that I've never played. Uh, what the heck? I can't think of the word when, when you like make treaties with somebody or something. Um, 
I don't remember it. Uh, supposed to be super interesting. I, I was just talking to him. I'm sure it was fascinating. It was just, it was so interesting. Yeah, I, I can't sure. remember the, the game itself. But um, but yeah, so no, I, I think absolutely AI is going to crush humans. It's an inevitability in a game like this. Uh, and I think maybe even more so in like, it's a little bit harder to get right in a probabilistic game as opposed to like a, a, a pure fixed outcome. Um, but I, I think it will certainly, certainly happen and get more progressive. But I think right now, right, all, all the AI is focused on on just playing GTO, right? So it's like, it's not made to exploit or do anything that's meant to maximize winnings. Like it's just made to not lose money. That's that's all it's trying to do is like find this Nash equilibria. And so, you know, may, maybe there will be work done in in finding like optimal exploitative strategy. And that would be a lot scarier, I think, for for the online landscape. But, but I do think whether it's six max or MTT is like, if if active research was going in from kind of like the, the top researchers, I, I think both are like a, a matter of a couple of years of research away at, at best. Um, and probably, probably. I, I'm going to apologize again. Again, this water is, is killing me. I'm going to nope. take one minute. Break nope, no back. problem. No problem. Uh, take your time. Um, here we are, guys. The sound of my voice. Oh, we have the same chair. Oh, mine's, in, mine's in teal. Look at that. All right. Uh, let's see. What else do we got coming up on the podcast for you guys? Bart Hansen is going to be joining us on Thursday. A lot to talk about. I'm um, considering the idea of opening up my own card room here in Austin. We're going to probably talk about that, talk about poker in Texas in general. By the way, guys, if you've not been to Texas and played some poker, holy shit, Texas poker is swinging. People are out here. They are playing poker and they are loving it. And I just have to say that uh, it is um, pretty. Pretty, pretty juicy games going on out here. Let me see here if I can find this. Oh, not going to find this. Um, there's a couple of streams I've played on. If you guys want to check those out on the big rooms here in Texas. So you can check those out. Um, but yeah, I'd recommend if you've not gotten a chance to play poker in Texas. To be honest with you, having been around the country playing poker in different places, I'd say the worst place you can try and play for a living is in Las Vegas, unless you need high stakes action, in which case, it's the only place, probably. And yeah, I guess LA is probably okay. Um, but realistically, the most nitty games I've played in my life have been in Vegas. California has some outstanding games. Texas has some outstanding games. Pennsylvania has outstanding games. Um, but really, Texas has outstanding games. I'd recommend checking those out. And he's back. Okay, where were we? Where, where would I ask you before you bailed on me? What, 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 what were we talking about? You're talking about like the, the future of AI within the space. And basically, I think a lot of problems in academia kind of resolve down to this state where I think most of the people who are best suited to solve them kind of see it as a solved problem now and don't care anymore. Like even arguably when we did our research, like a lot of, you know, people would consider the problem being like 80% or 90% of the way there, whether debatable, whether or not it actually had achieved kind of like world, world class at that time. Um, but I, I think now like anybody who's interested in actually solving truly solving it for for like intellectual reasons it's just like doesn't care it's not an interesting problem everybody's moving on to other things and so it's going to progress slower um because there there aren't kind of i would say the brightest people academics aren't always necessary whoa i don't know if i'm still live i'm here solo running the show i don't know if doug wants to hear this there he is he's back i accidentally pressed this, my side mouse button and it went back and just took me out of the out of the studio. Wow, I, I'm glad that didn't close. We were yeah, 
doing the show, huh? I, I solo, solo act for all of eight seconds. Okay, sorry, seconds. Go, go ahead. <laughs> no, um, so I, I don't want to say smarter. So it's not like academics are always, uh, you know, a lot of people in industry are, are brilliant and work on application of problems. But, um, you know, you just, uh, academics like live and breathe. That's, that's what, that's literally the only thing they're working on is solving and optimizing that problem or making some, you know, technological breakthrough on it or algorithmic breakthrough on it. And I think that's just gone away. So you do have people who are, um, incentivized to, to keep doing that. So, so PO solver and uh, monkey solver, is that the other one? Monker solver, monker solver, and a couple of the others, right? Like these guys sell it as a product and they've productized it. Um, but you know, a lot of that now, I think there are cool other game, maybe they're trying to do PLO or other things, six max. Um, but, but I think a lot of it is more like, how, how do we appeal to a user base and make it, make it accessible versus like solve the problem in the, the hardest or best possible way? Or truest possible way, I should say. There are still going to be people motivated by money, though. hundred percent. If you find the, if, if there are people that are smart enough and able to make something that can beat other people for money on the internet, they'll probably do so. I think that the biggest factor is how aggressively sites go after these people and protect their games, and that's why you need to play on sites that people really care about. And I, I am not. I'm going to give a plug that I was not paid for today, Brian. I was not paid for this plug, but. He just did such an awesome job that I feel like I got I to gotta give a plug here to Rob Young with Party Poker because there was recently a thread on an uneven distribution of buttons going to certain players over other players. And I got hit up by several people about it. And I told Rob and Rob instantly responded, we're on this. And then he's just sending me, okay, this was going on and this. And then it was just page after page of notes. Here's what we're doing now. Here's what we're looking at this. And we haven't found this, but I think it might be. This. And he's just going through. And this guy, this guy lost sleep at night trying to figure out why you as a pro wasn't weren't getting a fair amount of buttons and i it seems like it's probably okay i i, I don't want to give it an, an, an inaccurate description of what occurred but they're a hundred percent on it and care very deeply so party poker putting their best foot forward at least on that front i'm not saying that they're the best site to play on by any stretch of the imagination or something like that but you know it's good to know that there are people that care and are aggressively trying to fix these things. You want to hear that in the site that you're playing on. And real, realistically, as AI becomes stronger, that should become more and more part of where you decide to play at. De- definitely. And it's been interesting. I, I think since I left poker, like party poker, when I, when I was young, like when I was like 17 or whatever it was, par- party poker was like the place. It was like party in paradise. And it was like early. It was just oh, like- Oh man, paradise. Really throwing oh, it back. Yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, and then it was like, Full Tilt and Stars just took over everything. And like when I left poker, that's that's kind of how it was. Like, you know, Full Tilt, obviously not. But like Stars just kind of ran the show and everything else was secondary. And it seems like as streamers started going, like Party sponsored a lot of streamers and really carved out kind of a, a foothold for themselves there. So it's pretty cool to see them kind of actively pursuing that that side of things. And Rob seems obviously really active on on Twitter and just like generally trying to be part of the broader community it was like not something stars has ever cared about or done well at all. Yeah. Stars is, is interesting right now. They're they're It seems they're pivoting a little bit because they had about four or five or six years of nonstop. Let's go after the pros. Let's increase the rake. Let's remove the rake back. Let's get rid of the, the ambassadors. More we rake is better. Yeah. More rake is better. Of course. Tried and true. Um, so they, they had many, many years of that. And then now it seems that they're realizing, oh, they had their first day as not the biggest 
site in terms of total tables, I think a couple months ago, I forgot who number, I think number one might've been GG Booker. I forget who it was. And all of a sudden, you know what? Maybe we'll roll out some re- some rewards programs. Oh, wow, guys. Nice job. You, you, you only realize six years late that, hey, pro poker players are poker players too. And I, I've had this problem with sites and with how they treat professionals from the get-go, which is you kind of need the dream of poker that people can one day play for a living and play high stakes and do well. And you shouldn't feel like a criminal that you're making money in the game that you're paying to play on this site. Of course, we need to be to be aggressive in the way that you deal with pros that you know angle shoot or take grimy edges like buttoning people or sitting at your tables when they know that you've disconnected from the internet. But at the same time, we should still be you know happy that there are professionals that can make money playing the game because it shows that the game is beatable. The game can be beaten for for money and winnings, and and that's something that we should look up to. And so I think that now finally we're seeing poker stars roll out some incentives. Maybe they're not going that far, but they're at least saying. We recognize that maybe perhaps people should get a little money back when they play here. And it's funny to see this this little bit of a of, of a turn. I, I wonder if this is gonna shift the direction of the company moving forward. Which is interesting because they were like kind of pioneering in terms of like supernova elite system being like this was they were kind of selling that dream of like, listen, you have all of these tiers, and like if you are the hardest possible grinder. You can like aspire to this. You're going to get a huge amount back. You're going to get all these rewards. You had these guys who were kind of buying their Porsches with, uh, you know, FPP oh, and like all these the things. Like, the, S- the SND Porsche. Yeah. Porsche. Like, um, you know, it, it really, I think had so much, uh, just such a strong network effect of like anybody who was going to pursue that at all would put 100% of their volume on stars or like the very large majority of it. Um, and then they did away with it and, and you had all this fragmentation start happening where guys are just like, all right, I'm just going to sit the best lobbies everywhere and do whatever I can. And, they, and then they just sort of let stars was just like rewards who, who needs them. It became the worst place to play basically for high, the higher stakes because you got no rake back at high stakes and you only had to play the actual best regulars in the world. So, you know, that seems beatable. It's just you, OTB Red Baron, Linus Love and high rake yep. for high stakes. Good luck. Let me know how that goes for you. I'm sure you're going to do just great in those games. I am glad to hear that they are going back a little bit towards paying people back money. And uh, I hope that, you know, I hope that they can continue to go that direction. It's always good to have competition in the marketplace. And maybe that's really what this boiled down to was when they bought full tilt and there wasn't even a clear number two. They just had such a gap on the next company that maybe they didn't really care. And then you had party poker kind of come up and GG poker comes out of nowhere. And you have all these competitors now. Maybe maybe they're sensing some, um, not even sensing, they're seeing their numbers drop and go to their competitors. It's always healthy for you, the the, the customer, to have a competition amongst the businesses um, where you might patron. So yeah, definitely good to see that. Um Okay, a couple last topic topics here, and then uh, we can call it a day. You going to head to the World Series of Poker this year? You stop by? I wanted to. They're playing the highest ever heads up event, so it's a twenty five k heads up event, which they've they've never had. They've always had as a ten k prior. I think I think it would be the first year as a twenty five k. So I really wanted to get out there to play it, but um, I've got a four month old daughter, which is my third child, and uh, Congrats, every man. time. Uh, thank you. Uh, each each time I leave my wife with three now, right? Where's one? She's like, whatever, just go do whatever you want. One's so easy. Two is like, there's a bit of cash. Three freaking madness, right? So anytime that I leave is uh, 
Yeah, I, I need to make sure I'm surgical about it. So I'm going to Dubai next month and I'm going to speak at a conference in Lisbon uh, in November. And so I, I think I'm going to skip the WSOP in order to save myself and my marriage. Um, but I did really want to get out to play that event. And, you know, hopefully within the next year or two, I'll, I'll get out and play some. You're putting your family in front of the World Series of Poker. You you would not make a good poker player. I know, man. Tragic. What, what are you going to speak at in Dubai? I'm not speaking at Dubai. Dubai is just like a crypto thing that's happening. I'm oh, speaking in Lisbon cool. at Solana Breakpoint, um, which is kind of like the big Solana conference happening over there. And I think ETH Lisbon is right before it. Maybe I'll try to do both, but likely just Breakpoint at this point. Right. That reminds me of your, of your Solana uh, comment, quote, doesn't have very good security or something like that. I forget what it uh, was. Yeah. Yeah. Word for word. You got it. Oh, no, there you go. Nice. Okay. Perfect. Um, okay. That's, uh, that sounds fun. Uh, I wish you the, the best of luck on, on uh, that speech. And, uh, it's kind of it here for for me, man. Anything you wanna you wanna talk about here before we close out? Thank you for coming on today. I mean, thanks thanks for having me. Um, obviously, uh, big fan of the the podcast and happy happy to just jump on. Um, no, I don't think anything from my end. Uh, great conversation. Happy to get to finally like again. I'm I'm the kind of person who just likes to like talk about what I'm building. I, I like to be out yeah. and like work in public kind of thing. So building for six to eight months in complete stealth was uh torture for me. And even now we have a paper uh, that we're going to, another paper we're publishing, another couple of things we're releasing that has been very, very like, I've even postponed some other podcast appearances in, in specific crypto space. We're like, why don't we just wait till I can talk about everything? Cause I'll slip up and do it. Um, but no, it's thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, no problem. You do get really passionate about it and kind of hard to understand because you throw a lot of terms very quickly and I'm at least sort of around it. So I'm okay. I know I sort of know what we're talking about and then you lose me a little bit, but then I can tell for some of the casual viewers in the chat, they're, they're, a multi-chain what? <laughs> so, you know, you got to try and break it down for the viewers. And I think we did a good job of that today. So uh, yeah, thank you for coming on and, and talking about what you're passionate about. And I thought that was a good conversation today too. Awesome. Yeah. Where, well, where, 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 to anybody if I was, you know, waving my hands and throwing concepts around, but where, uh, where can people follow you at? Uh, I'm at primordial AA on Twitter. Um, or you can look at, you know, layer, layer zero underscore labs, layer zero dot network. Uh, you'll be able to find me pretty easily. So, yeah. All right. Sounds good. Thank you, Brian. And thank you guys for tuning in today for another episode of the pod. We're going to be joined on Thursday by Bart Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, you're just checking it out today. Make sure you subscribe guys. We've been growing. We have lots of great guests. If you want to see this podcast grow and thrive in the online ecosystem, make sure to hit the subscribe button. It goes a long way towards showing us that you like what we're putting out here on the channel. That's going to be it for me. Thank you guys for tuning in and I'll see you on Thursday.